Good afternoon, fans. This is the Environmental Echo by P.W. Grocer. I'm your host, Paul Boyce, CEO and president of the firm. Uh, and I just want to say thanks for listening. We do have a great topic and a great guest today on our, on our podcast. We have got uh, Professor or Dr. Chris Gobler from the University of Stony Brook, and we're going to be talking about some real interesting stuff as it relates to the environment and nitrogen and surface and groundwaters. Um, but before we begin, I just want to say that the best way to get a hold of us, if, you, if anyone's interested in following up with questions, comments, or thoughts and ideas, is through our website, which is www.pwgrocer.com backslash podcast. Um, we're usually very responsive with that stuff. We've got guys that check it every single day. So again, comments, best way to get a hold of us is right on in. So let me introduce our guest. As I mentioned, it's going to be Dr. Chris Gobler from the University of Stony Brook. Uh, Chris, welcome and thanks for joining us. Uh, just a little bit about his background. Um, you know, after we've uh, just wanted to say we did take a summer break this year, uh, so we did skip a couple of months, and we're, we're glad to be back on the air and, and live here. Uh, but our, our guest, he is the, the head of the University of uh, Stony Brook's Marine, School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences. Uh, that's SOMAS. He received his master's and Ph.D. from uh, SUNY, SUNY Stony Brook uh, in the 1990s, and Dr. Gobler began his career, academic career, at Long Island University in 1999. In 2005, he joined Stony Brook University as the director of academic programs for SOMAS at Stony Brook's uh, Southampton campus. In 2014, he was appointed as associate the, the Associate Dean of, of Research at SOMAS, and in 2015, he was named co-director for the Center for Clean Water Technology, or CCWT, which is investigating how anthropogenic activities such as climate change, uh, eutrophication, and the overharvesting of fisheries alters the nat- uh, natural biochemical and ecological functioning of coastal ecosystems. He studied the impacts of harmful algal blooms caused by multiple classes of uh, phytoplankton in in diverse ecosystems and the effects of coastal ocean acidification on marine life. I mean, this is all, uh, you'll see, I'm an avid surfer, so I love the ocean. It's going to be (laughs) an interesting topic here. Uh, A lifelong Long Islander, his focus on marine sciences was uh, motivated by the progressive declines in Long Island's shell fisheries during the 1980s. Uh, Over the past 20 years, his research has identified the key role of uh, excessive nitrogen has played uh, in the degradation of Long Island's fisheries and water quality. With the establishment of... With the establishment of the CCWT, Dr. Gobler sees the promise of discovering the solutions to Long Island's nitrogen problems and the creation of an industry that creates jobs for Long Islanders. And Chris, thanks for coming on and, and, and joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. All right, so let's get started. Um, as I've mentioned, you know, PW Grocer, we are an environmental engineering and consulting firm, and, and you know, this is what we love to do. Uh, our our vision, or actually our mission, is to you know help clean up the planet for our clients and, and make this a, a more sustainable you know place for um, the current and future generations. Um, but with 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 our guest today, you know, over the past decade, you know, uh, much of the focus has been on the design and engineering of wastewater treatment systems, you know, that are aimed at reducing nitrogen levels and loading. You know, we, we can't open a paper or look at the news without seeing a story that's you know related to this type of stuff, uh, the impacts that of nitrogen has on our either surface waters or groundwaters. You know, for our viewers and our listeners, can you tell us about the negative influence nitrogen is having on our ground and surface waters? Sure thing, yeah. And let me just say happy to be here and talking to you. Um, But yeah, you know, actually, interestingly, uh, just a year after I was born in 1971, 
a very famous scientist from Woods Hole Oceanographic, which is the nation's most renowned and um, oceanographic institute in the world, in the country, um, published a paper uh, in the, the journal Science, the top science journal. And it was 1971, he recognized that in New York coastal waters that nitrogen was what he called the limiting element. And essentially what that means is that nitrogen controls the rate at which primary production proceeds in New York coastal waters. And so um, when you add a little bit of nitrogen to the water, therefore, it has a big impact on the ecosystem. Um, it triggers a cascade of events where it's going to make uh, primary producers like phytoplankton and algae grow faster, and that can be seaweeds, that can be phytoplankton, um, and it can have negative impacts on other things like salt marshes and then seagrasses. And amongst the microalgae, the phytoplankton, sometimes, uh, in many cases, the phytoplankton that grow can be harmful. Some of these things called harmful algal blooms. Um, those types of algae can be harmful to humans because in some cases they make toxins. In other cases, they're harmless to humans, but they can cause things like fish kills. They can be something called ichthyotoxic. Um, so you can get the overgrowth of these harmful algal blooms with too much nitrogen. Uh, and like I said, that can make people sick. That can lead to fish kills. That can lead to low oxygen. It definitely leads to shading. That shading, of course, can kill off and has killed off seagrasses. Um, the low oxygen is detrimental, harmful to marine life. Um, you know, nothing except for bacteria can live without oxygen. Um, so you get this whole cascading event, a uh, series of events, and it's essentially what's happened since Ryder published that paper in the 70s. And so that is, um, we had progressively more and more people, and therefore uh, more and more nitrogen from wastewater. And in, in Suffolk County, of course, um, with 70% of the homes being built, not being connected to, to a sewage treatment plant, Household wastewater is going right to groundwater and therefore becomes our drinking water source. And what we don't extract discharges into surface waters and initiates this cascade of events. And, uh, you know, as a consequence, uh, hard clam landings on the South Shore are down 99%. And then the scallop fishery on the East End, similarly down 99%. So, um, so anyway, that sort of gives you the broad overview of why nitrogen is uh, so central and controlling things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's it's a topic we've had on the on the podcast before, and it, it is important. Uh, and you know, you started to mention some of the sources of excess nitrogen, like the, the sanitary systems. Are there any other sources besides just wastewater that we should be concerned about? Sure. You know, I mean, wastewater um, is really the primary one or the most most important one. Right. So the studies have been done and it's not surprising that that's the case because, you know, usually in a, you know, unless you're living in a very, very rural area, the biggest source is either going to be wastewater or fertilizer. And, uh, you know, because we're so densely populated on Long Island, just as a caveat uh, or a um, not a caveat, but a, a, a side note that, you know, the density of people living in Nassau and Suffolk County, if we were a nation, we'd be something like the 20th most densely populated country in the world. Um, and so when you have that many people that densely populated, you know, by, it's almost in, impossible for wastewater to not be the biggest source of nitrogen. Um, but we do know that fertilizer can also be important. It's usually, and, and in almost all cases, it's the second biggest contributor. Um, and, you know, whether that, that fertilizer is coming from residential use or golf courses or, um, Agriculture, of course, all depends on where you are uh, across Long Island. 
Well, it's 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 a significant issue for us. We've we've seen that play out, and, and you've mentioned stuff like the uh, the harmful algal blooms, the Habs, right? Um, the blue green algae, the 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 brown or the rust tides, the things like that. Um, how significant is it really in in the formation of the, of the, of those occurrences, and what other factors are contributing to that? Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly central. We've published the paper showing. If you add more nitrogen to the water, these harmful algal blooms grow faster, they get more dense. And one of the really troubling parts is that they actually, in, in at least two cases, get more toxic. That is, the toxins that they make are nitrogen-rich compounds. Uh, so, and I'll just call it out. There's one called saxitoxin. That's a neurotoxin. It's a thousand times more potent than cyanide that's made by a marine hab. And in, in the freshwater realm, there's microcystin, which is a gastrointestinal toxin, also very nitrogen-rich. When it was first identified, the scientists called it fast death factor because it's so potent. Um, and again, in both cases, more nitrogen allows the, the HABs to make more toxins. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a very, very central controlling factor in these events. You know, there's other things that also can contribute in time and place. Uh, you know, we, we could talk about that, you know, things like climate change factors and such. Oh, that was my next question. You know, temperature, you know, right? That's got to play a big role in this stuff. We're, I, as I mentioned, I'm an avid surfer, and this was the warmest I've ever felt the ocean in, in my 30-plus years of surfing. You know, it's, it's uh, what's going on? I'm, I'm sure that's got to be contributing. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, our lab group actually pioneered uh, the use of using satellite-based temperature to historically reconstruct changes in coastal water temperature, um, actually globally, because, you know, it's based on satellites that go all across the globe. Yeah. So we published papers that look at, you know, everything from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. But, of course, we've also, with that data set, been able to do a deep dive in Long Island. And, uh, you know, you're... Um, uh, your, your feet are not deceiving you as you sit at your surfboard and feel those temperatures and that the, the warming that we've experienced this century alone, so since you know, the turn of the century, since around the year 2000 until now, um, has been four times the global average. So we're, you know, we're, I won't say we're the epicenter for global warming, but we're one of those regions on the planet that are warming faster than average. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that's the interesting thing, right? When people talk about global climate change, you know, by virtue of that word global, what it often they're meaning is the global average, which is meaningless because really what's important is what's happening in each individual ecosystem. And there are ecosystems that are cooling, but ours is one that's warming fast. I, what I didn't say, and it's important to emphasize, this is specifically in summer. Right. So some of our other seasons, like spring, for example, haven't really changed that much, but our summers are much warmer. Technically, that's probably the worst time for it to happen, however, right? because if you warm in the spring, all that simply does is it shifts the seasons. Right. So you'll just move through spring quickly and you'll get the summer faster when it comes to sort of the succession of animals and plants that you'll have in the water. Um, but when it happens in summer, essentially what that means is you're hitting a whole new territory. Um, and as you hit that new territory, you know, there's essentially two outcomes. Some things in the water are going to be pushed beyond their maximal thermal tolerance. And, you know, I don't know how else to say it. They're going to tap out. <laughs> uh, but there'll be other organisms that say, oh, look, this is this is perfect. And they're going to come in and really enjoy things. And so just to give some examples, 
um, you know, the Long Island lobster used to be a huge fishery. The Long Island Sound lobster was actually the biggest fishery in New York at the end of the 20th century. Um, it totally collapsed at the turn of the century, so in the year 1999, uh, and never returned. Uh, but <laughs> Maine, actually, that fishery, because it got warmer into the ideal range, has been doing great. Uh, but other organisms um, are threatened now by higher temperatures. For example, the, sea, the uh, Peconic Bay scallop is now at its um, sort of its thermal maximum. And it is, you know, that fishery has recently declared a federal disaster, uh, one of, I think, three or four in the whole country for the last several years. Um, and it affects the harmful algal blooms because there's at least one species, the, for example, the rust tide. We never saw that in the 20th century. Uh, it now happens every year, and it's simply because we weren't we we it, in the twentieth century. It had a very brief window for it to form what we'd call a bloom, uh, but now that window encompasses almost the whole summer. So it's right in its sweet spot, and um, you know, and as a consequence, we the rust tides on Long Island started in early July, and they're still going on. As if I got a report of one just yesterday. Oh gosh, yeah, it's and. For me, I, I, I firsthand experience, you know, obviously I love the water, love to go out fishing, love boating and all that stuff. And we're out there in the Great South Bay in some spots, and it looks like we're cruising across like coffee. I mean, like it's that brown. It's it's just, it's frightening. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, you're born in the 1970s. Uh, we're almost probably the exact same age here. I was born in the early 70s as well. But I remember back in the 80s when I was a teenager, you know, you mentioned the, um, the, 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 the clams, the, the hard in, in your bio, we mentioned the, the, the clams and the, and the hard shell fisheries and everything else. And I've had family members and friends that were all into clamming back then. Yep. And, uh, you know, I'd go down to the dock at the end of the day when they were all coming in and, and they're just coming in with bushels and there was more boats than I could count. You know, it was amazing. And now, you know, I'm out there. If I see one or two of them on the bay, I'm surprised, you know. So it's, it's, it's interesting and it's, it's upsetting. You know, especially on the East End, you know, there was once a, a thriving scallop industry out there as well. Uh, that's a shadow of itself. You know, how do we get there? What do we do to ourselves? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a consequence of multiple factors concurrently. So, you know, it, on the South Shore, you know, what you are witnessing at that point in time with the, the gangbuster harvest um, was actually the mismanagement of a fishery. And that is they were giving out. They're letting anybody who wanted to clam, which is, you know, that was great. And it was it, it created this great maritime tradition. Um, but the, the history of fisheries um, in, across the world is, oh, a fishery is really good. Everybody jumps in. Everybody's harvesting. And then, oh, my gosh, the fishery's gone. Right. And so, um, you know, and so the, the lesson learned through the 20th century is that you've got to, it, fisheries have to be managed. So anyway, boiling it down. That fit, that hard clam fishery when it first collapsed, and that you know the decline started in the early uh, early eighties. That first collapse was actually due to overharvesting. So you you saw it right when you yeah. when you have that many boats pulling in that many clams day after day after day. You know eventually it's going to pull everything out, um, and that's what happened. But but at the same time, you know without those clams there and the loading of nitrogen increasing that made that ecosystem vulnerable to these harmful algal blooms which then prevented the clams from recovering um and you know the i'll just mention also that the the clams in the in in the former state when there were lots of them were part of keeping water quality in check right clams are what we call filter feeding bivalves they filter the water 
right? So they're, they're no different than, you know, technically than the filter you put on a fish tank or on a pool, right? They yeah. filter yeah. the water and they keep it clear. You remove that filter and, you know, lo and behold, the water starts to get murky. Um, and we don't have, in, in the 70s, it's estimated that there were enough clams to filter the whole bay every three days. Now we think it takes more than three months. And so you have, you lose the filter and then you add the nitrogen and that's where, how we land where we are today. Oh, geez. And I assume the same thing for the scallops. I mean, because I've just seen the last couple of, I don't know, summers, it's just non-existent anymore. It's, they're gone. It's, a, it's, it's similar to the scallops, except that it wasn't the overharvest that did in that fishery. Um, it was... In the first iteration of brown tide, so a harmful algal bloom in 1985, that dealt the uh, the first blow to that fishery. Um, there was a lot of uh, restoration efforts made, and it was recovering to some extent uh, uh, earlier this century, so let's say 2005 through 2015. Um, but since then, there's been the temperatures warming. You know, so like I said, even though the recovery started. And then we then we got to the point where you know I mean almost every summer I we measure temperatures in the Pocatuck estuary and um, you know we're routinely measuring temperatures that are in the mid 80s, um, which is you know this is water it's not air yeah. so it gets really warm, um, and on top of that there's been other problems rust tides as I just mentioned have been happening year after year, um, you throw in some disease like a parasite that might be in there and. Uh, for the scallops as well. That's, I've heard about the parasites, but to, to move to a, maybe a little bit of a different topic, Superstorm Sandy. That opened a breach, right? That, that old inlet out there by kind of like Bellport, uh, you know, sort of a little bit west of Smith's Point there. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's closed yet. I know it was starting to close up, but um, what? Definitely, it, it, it has closed. Um, we actually have a um, one, obviously hard to monitor because it's in the, what they call the wilderness, right? So you can't yeah. drive there. The only way to get there is by boat. Um, so, um, but you know, between boat visits and aerials, it, it definitely did close earlier this year. And we've had a, actually a gauge in Bellport Bay, um, uh, water quality, a continuous water quality monitoring device. Um, actually anybody can go visit it from my lab webpage in Bellport and, um, and so with that, we've gotten a sense of how the breach is doing via the salinity monitoring. Um, so it's closed, but it does, um, you know, you do get ocean washover and significant ocean washover yeah. now and again. So for example, when we had, um, I guess when Hurricane Lee passed by, it was, you know, the storms, uh, or the storm surge and the waves from all that, we could, I could actually see that there was some washover uh, and that the salinity popped way up. Uh, so a lot of, you know, water waves breaking over, bringing in that ocean water. And then since then, it's been sort of tailing down again. So so is is, is this a good thing when the breach is open? I mean, uh, everything I've seen and read, it's that, uh, you know, things were starting to come back. Things were getting cleaned up. I mean, is this something we need to think about? Well, I mean, I, so the, I, I'll give a yes and no answer. You know, on the yes side, there's no doubt that that, that inlet formed. Bellport Bay got a lot cleaner uh, and was because you simply had more tidal flushing. Same thing happened for Narrow Bay, which is right next to Bellport Bay. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, when that breach formed, you now I think I even said on record 
oh, this is going to solve all Grace Hell Bay's problems. <laughs> and, um, you know, because my assumption is that it would flush out the whole bay. But, you know, the interesting thing about inlets is that, you know, they don't, um, and tidal flushing in general, in physics, it's going to do, it's, they're going to, we're not in control, right? And, and we can't even necessarily predict the outcome. You can try to model them, but it doesn't always work. And so that breach ended up, that new inlet ended up communicating very well with the Mauritius inlet, but had almost no flow to the West. And so what it actually did is that there was a great, like I said, so we, and we published a paper on this in 2019, um, that there was significant water quality improvement in Bellport Bay and in Narrow Bay. Um, but actually in central Great Job Bay, the water quality got a little bit worse. Um, and that's because what you ended up getting is the Fire Island Inlet flushing well with the Jones Inlet, that new inlet flushing well with the Mauritius Inlet, and then the middle of Great South Bay sort of, you know, to some extent, sloshing back and forth. Yeah, there were more brown tides, for example, during uh, the post-breach uh, uh, time period. So I think it was like 2013 to 2018 that we measured in that paper uh, compared to before. Um, so, you know, the, and so there's no doubt ocean flushing is a good thing. And, you know, there's the old adage, uh, uh, dilution is the solution to pollution. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and those are, those are, these, these are truisms, but the other truism is that, you know, we just can't, it's, it, if you get enhanced flushing in one region, don't presume you know how the rest of the ecosystem is going to respond, and it may well result in a more stagnant area. So that's the, the, that's Chris. That was super interesting because I, I heard about how it cleaned up, you know, by the inlets and everything. But in between them, like you just mentioned, I, I had no idea that that was happening. That stag yeah. got stagnant and things actually degraded a little bit. You know, so that's something to think about because I, you know I've spoken to some politicians and some, you know, other engineers and people think, well, what if we put a series of pipes under the barrier island and we, we pump yeah. water back and forth? Is this going to help? You know, and it's a matter of maybe yeah. where you do it and how much, but. Yeah. And there's been, you know, there's, and there was, as an example on that topic, uh, the state invested through the town of Southampton, a, a big study uh, to look at that, like, oh, let's put some pipes in Shinnecock Bay that should help flush things out. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is that it had, an effect, but it was very small. And, you know, the, the improvement of water quality, I, I can't remember, but it was something like maybe 3% of the bay would flush at a faster rate. You not, and it also, you know, you have to think of the other potential consequences. So just as one consequence we thought about in that case, um, I've, I, I've headed a program called the Shinnecock Bay Restoration Program uh, Project, where we've planted a lot of hard clams in Shinnecock Bay and the idea is we were planting adults, not little seed, because the adults can spawn and make more clams. And, you know, an individual, two clams together can make tens of millions of clams in a single spawning event. And so that actually worked very, very well. And so that clam fishery is actually on, on an upward trajectory. But um, the important point is that the first, when clams reproduce, it's called broadcast spawning. They throw their gametes in the water. The baby clams are in the water. And... You know, for the fishery to do, to, for that fishery to um, make a comeback, those larvae have to stay in the bay for a couple of weeks yeah, because yeah. they're swimming around the larval phase for two weeks, right? And so when we planted the clams, we said, oh, we'll put them here because that'll keep them in the bay. Well, if you suddenly, you know, punch a hole in there, 
what we found is that the ones that you put by an inlet get washed out to the ocean and you'll never see them again. All really interesting stuff. All right, I want to thank everyone today for listening. That was the first half of a two-part podcast, and please stay tuned for part two, which is coming up soon.